Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. Uh, it's the 18th of May, but you're listening to this conversation on the 15th of July. Uh, with us today is Wendy Wea, uh, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, an American nonprofit focusing on exposing and countering racism, bigotry, and prejudice. Welcome, Wendy. Um, my first question to you would be, uh, you've recently published a report called Democracies Under Threat. And in it, you, you highlight the issue of digital content intermediaries, Facebook, Twitter, um, and their role in, in, let's say, hate normalization. So my first question would be a broad one. How does the information society and hate go together? Well, I think that when we're talking about the online misinformation and hate speech, it, it goes together because the companies, these huge tech companies that have a presence in every, just about every country in the world are not able to errat, I mean, mitigate, much less eradicate um, the hate speech. And for in, in our report, what we talk about is how extremist and far-right politicians need those social media companies to help spread their messages because in order to grow their base and to gain support for their often bigoted policies, they need to send out polarizing messages. The mm. polarizing messages resonate much better on social media than in um, other areas. And, and you are able to, and, and also the algorithms within those uh, for the tech companies promote that kind of polarizing or I say polarizing. I don't think that it's, I think that's actually too soft of a word. I think it should be, um, I mean, I think that in many ways you, you could just say bigoted and it, and it, it brings, it, it, it appeals to the, to the, um, to the deepest fears of the citizenry that are listening to it. Mm. Mm. So there are two, let's say, prevailing narratives connected with the role of uh, digital content intermediaries. There's one that you've just mentioned that these uh, intermediaries are not independent, that they're not neutral, but they're sort of, they sort of bunch up people that share common, let's say, goals or common beliefs together in, 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 in a sort of an echo chamber. And this is especially problematic as, uh, uh, as, as far as hate speech is concerned. On the other side, you have a theory that these, um, these um, networks are, let's say, pro-left and that they're specifically targeting conservative voices that are, that, are being, that are being shut down or that are being censored. Which theory do you think more accurately describes what's happening in, in, in the real world, let's say, or what's really happening? Well, I would have to say that um, I reject completely the second theory <laughs> because, <laughs> because um, shutting down hate speech, shutting down demonizing language, shutting down the, uh, the appeal to people's fears over the other, meaning immigrants or black people or gay people, 
that is not shutting down a conservative voice. Mm -hmm. I am, I mean, we at the organization and in our report, we, we, we talk specifically about the fact that there are legitimate discussions and debates around policy, whether they be conservative or on the left. And I'm using the U.S. terms, right, mm -hmm. for conservative and liberal. Mm -hmm. um, th th there's, there's plenty of ways to have those conversations without resorting to hate speech. And so the idea that when you shut down hate speech, when you shut down somebody who says things like, yeah, Muslims are ruining the world, mm. that is that is not shutting down a conservative voice. That's shutting down a hateful voice. Now, mm. if you want to have a legitimate discussion about immigration, of course, I would say that for these politicians, that it, that their discussions around immigration, for example, are based in uh you know have a racist foundation to them but there mm. are legitimate conversations about races um, excuse me about immigration for every country and mm -hmm. so it's just not the same and the and the vast majority of politicians in this world are not trying to undermine democracy are not trying to or in in countries that are democracies right they're mm. not trying to undermine democracies and they're not trying to demonize entire communities they have a they have maybe they have a more conservative social or fiscal approach than say a liberal uh politician might but you can have as i say you can have those discussions without it just resorting to the worst level of um bigotry mm. there's there's let's say a global uptick of uh let's say alt-right movements on on both sides of the ocean or in I, I guess I could say every part of the globe um, and again there are many theories to um, to its you know origin theory so can you can you explain or can you can you share your view on the on the on your you know assumption or on your theory how the the alt-right hate became uh, popular again in the US was it was it just Trump was it Trump and social media was it something you know completely different well I don't I'd, I would say that the alt-right as you call as you say did not become popular again the alt-right which um, we sort of reject that terminology too because it plays into the hands of these um newer uh white supremacists and white nationalists right in an effort mm. to rebrand who they are mm -hmm. and so like yes i think you mentioned earlier you know we didn't call them all right 10 years mm. ago we called them neo-nazis well they're it's the same that's mm. still who they are they're still white supremacists but they have they have rebranded because of you know it it makes they're able to make themselves more appealing to a different audience mm. and it's also a way to, to sort of hide their true nature so but but to answer your question and go back to the beginning um the u.s the u.s is built on it, it this very foundation is white supremacist and mm. it is and because of um i mean we could we could go all the way back to when the Europeans came and they uh, there was a genocide against the Native Americans, right? 
or mm. but we, then we talk about slavery slavery you know um that is not something that has that the country has ever been able to completely eradicate from its systems and so in every all the after the civil war after the slavery was abolished but then every legislative um uh, initiative was still meant to keep down to prevent the black population from having an equal place in society so mm. it goes into our school systems it goes into our economic systems it's in the job market it's 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 pervasive throughout the the country mm. now and so every time there was uh whenever we had sort of leaps in civil rights for um african americans is when you would see a backlash of the white supremacists so you say you saw it in the 20s with the clan there being hundreds of thousands of national uh members and having huge rallies in madison square garden in new york or then you saw it again in the 50s um when desegregation uh for the schools happened then you saw it again in the 60s when the civil rights act was passed and so it has never gone away it's just sort of reframed um mm. through over the history of the country and now you're seeing it again because you know we have so much farther to go and i don't want to take away any of the progress the country's made because there has been tremendous progress there's just still so much more to do but then you have as you have what's going on now with the racial justice protest the recognition the uh the recognition um recognition of the fact that law enforcement disproportionately arrest and kills black men right mm -hmm. so you have all of this is going on so then you you have this again this backlash that Trump didn't invent he just he just played it to his advantage in a masterful way mm -hmm. And a follow-up question uh, to that effect is: So, how do you how do you see this uh, this let's say hate, generally speaking, overflowing the world? So, in the recent period, we've seen a lot of let's say hate ideals entering the EU from the US and vice versa. You have on on our side, so to speak, generation identity on our side of the ocean. On your side, you have the Oath Keepers. You have many different groups that are that are basically aligned with the same let's say white supremacy alt-right uh, symbols so would you say that there's a there's a systemic view on these organizations can can they be interpreted as as parts of the same let's call it the global hate movement well i think i think that one that we want to note within this discussion is the fact that um generation identity for example is a racialized movement right they mm -hmm. um anti-immigrant you know in our view i would say anti-brown people right because mm -hmm. the white the white uh the legitimate white european is being threatened with the oath keepers that's more of an anti-government militia movement something mm -hmm. that and and in the us but then you have um you still have active clan kkk groups you still have active um uh i'm trying to think like the proud boys who mm. say they are not racist but that is quickly becoming 
um, you know, it's quickly being proved that that is that is false. Mm -hmm. So you have these racialized groups. But what is interesting about what's been happening in the last few years is, and particularly if you've looked at the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, you had all these groups. You had Klan members, you had neo-Nazis, you had Proud Boys, you had Oath Keepers, you had the Three Percenters, you know, all of these groups that don't ordinarily come together. Mm. And they were all there at the insurrection. Mm. And what is unusual, I mean, and that is, I don't know if you know, but like years ago, um, clan groups wouldn't have anything to do with skinheads because skinheads were, they didn't have the same sort of high ideals that clan groups, mm. but then over the last 20 years, now they're interchangeable, right? And so mm. I think the fear is that for all of these fringe extremist groups, which I would say there are certainly some elements of bigotry and prejudice at the heart of them, but they perhaps acted out in a different way. But now they have come together around, well, in our case, around Trump and the idea that, you know, the, the American ideal and the American way of life is threatened mm. by, um, particularly by a, a promotion of equity among uh, races. And mm. then, so then for the, um, the global view of it, every country that is experiencing an increase in this very extreme behavior or, or movement is they are facing changing demographics. And in, say, in Germany, it's, or Austria, it's coming from uh, the perceived threat of refugees or migrants. In the U.S., it's the same. I mean, it just depends on which part of the world the immigrants are coming from. But it's a threat to uh, their society. And because people are fearful of their of their lives being changed in a substantive way where they I'm talking about everyday people, you know, they're, they they are fearful. And so the um, everybody from the on the ground sort of neo-Nazis to the extreme politicians are able to to play on that fear, to build it up. And you have a resurgence of the, the, uh, let's get rid of the other, you know? Mm. Mm. So, so moving forward, how do you see the role in, of, let's say the before mentioned digital intermediaries in, in this conflict? So what what's their I mean how are they responsible or or co-responsible for the for the current state of of affairs in this field? Well, if we're referring to the sort of the main social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, mm. YouTube, um, it is my opinion that they entered countries. They 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 they. They created these sort of amazing platforms and and threw them out there to the world and entered countries that um, where they had no understanding of the cultural and sociopolitical situations and were and just it's sort of like a bomb exploded, right? Because mm. they they have no ability to adequately assess what is happening in the in uh 
various societies or in uh, in political situations, so that they are not at, at a minimum not uh, adding to the problem. Mm. But and because they did that, like they have added to the problem because they don't have the cultural competency, they don't have the language uh, competency, they do not have an understanding of, you know, hundreds of years of societal, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, Um, just what happens in societies, right? Social context. Yeah, social context, thank you. Um, and, And so if you don't know that going in, if you went in irresponsibly as they did, now they are constantly playing catch up. Unfortunately, their business model doesn't encourage them to take the steps that are necessary to actually not be a force for bad in mm. in in these situations. Mm. They don't they don't have I do not believe I, let me say this. I believe that there are some very good people at all of these companies and I've talked to many of them, but I think um, from a corporate standpoint or even from a company cultural standpoint, there is the, the will to address this is not there. Mm -hmm. Even with, with, let's say the current, um, let's say attempts at, at a more rigorous self-regulation model, right? You have the, the Facebook oversight board, you have, other, uh, let's say, entities that are trying to um, trying to play in the the self-regulatory model and try to convince, let's say, the decision makers and the general public that they are in control of the situation, that they know it's bad, but you know, stand back, will handle it. Do you think that's that's the way to go, or is it, you know, did we miss the train of of self-regulation in that regard? Well, I'd like to think that there is some sort of solution um, that maybe combined with legislative efforts, it, far more likely in the European space, you know, than in the American space because of the difference in the laws. But mm. I, I am quite, I, I do think that we might have missed the boat. It's too late. And mm. I'll give you the example of um the Facebook, the most recent decision by the Facebook Oversight Board, you know, which is a group of folks who have really um, impressive backgrounds in civil rights and law, and um, and Facebook kicked its decision about Trump to their newly created Oversight Board, mm-hmm. which was you know, in itself irresponsible because they, they need to, as a company, they need to make these decisions. They don't need to, they don't need to, you don't have to talk or have everybody wait, you know, or have this special select group of folks weigh in. They are not a legitimate court, right? There, mm. there are people who have an interest in it. They also have a conflict of interest, right? So how can, how are they the ones to make this decision? Now, having said that, their most recent decision, if you read it, it, and, and, well, they suffered, I can tell you, a great deal of pressure from civil society. In the U.S., you know, that's where 
most of the pressure comes from is from civil society, but it's also that way in European countries. You mm. have government regulation, but it's civil society is, are the ones that are pressuring these companies to do the right thing. And so there had been a great deal of international pressure on the oversight board. We ourselves put out this report to show, to talk about the world leaders, and it's not just about Trump, it's about what's happening all over the world. And you need to think bigger picture. We don't need a decision as to whether or not Trump violated one rule, and so that justified Facebook taking him down, which is what they hoped, This is which is what Facebook hoped they could hang their hats on. But the, the Facebook, the oversight board came back and said, no, Facebook, you should never have sent this decision to us. This is a, this, this problem is the result of your, um, the lack of clarity in your policies, the lack of equal enforcement in your policies, the, uh, and, and your lack of will to take responsibility for what is going on as a result of your platform which has 3 billion people on it. And I don't even know how much money Facebook makes. Mm -hmm. And and they said, not only are we giving this decision back to you because you need to address these things, but you need to think about it globally and what are the, what is happening with other world leaders. And that mm -hmm. was really the purpose of our report. We hoped that we could get the oversight board to think about that and not fall back on this very narrow specific reason for why Trump was taken down on January 7th. Right. Mm. Um, mm. And so, I mean, I think, but us along with so many other groups were able to bring that to their attention and now face. So if they say they are going to abide by the guidance, that is uh, put out by the oversight board, which is what they said. So they created this, they created this board. They said, we're going to abide by whatever the board says. Well, now are they, you know, mm. <laughs> we'll mm. see if they actually do. So when you ask about this sort of third party neutral uh, uh, regulation, I don't see it working, at least mm. not in the current context. Mm. But there's a lot of, so, all of these debates uh, that we have addressed right now are, are now mainly happening on, as as we mentioned, on the self-regulatory model, right? So uh, the 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 community or the the society is pressuring the the company, the private company. The private company is trying to come up with, let's say, answers which are really, I guess you could call them excuses. But what about, let's say, the the political level of the discussion, the, the regulatory model, the, the, the framework that would um, sort of uh, tie these companies to some sort of code of behavior or, or, or code of responsibility that would be written in a law. You know, do you see something like that happening in the US or let's say in, in other parts of the world? Well, I don't see it happening in the US. Um, and and I know you're familiar with our First Amendment, our freedom of speech, which is completely different than um, many European countries who do have some sort of regulation on hate speech. There is no there is no distinction between speech and hate speech in the U.S. And it would be very very uh, difficult to get 
something like that into place. And, you know, and I'm not even sure that we want that, right? Because, I mean, this is an American tenant and a lot of people don't understand it, but this is, this is what it is. Um, and so what you have is, you know, Facebook, for example, not uh, sometimes compares itself to a government, which is outrageous. Mm. But, and, and they like to think that they should behave as a government. And in this case, they are behave, they, they, they alternate between behaving like the U.S. government saying that they do not want to interfere with somebody's free speech, therefore hate speech or these, this borderline content should be left up. Well, they're not a government entity. They, they are a private company and have the right and the uh, responsibility to say, this is our company. We are not going to allow uh, haters to take over. We're mm. not going to allow haters to drive our algorithms. We're not going to do that. This is our decision. Mm. And they haven't made that decision. They keep comparing themselves to the U.S. government just as they compare this oversight board to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's, mm. It is outrageous. Mm. And so, but then in the European space, um, you know, you have d laws in different countries um, that ha they have laws against hate speech in Germany. You have the law that uh, tries to regulate the uh, the companies, the social media, and there's and there's legislation working its way through the EU. It still comes down to enforcement. Mm. But what is going to be that what is going to be enough motivation to get these companies to act? So in, in the European space, there's some recognition that they're there. You can't get them to act unless you regulate and legislate it. Mm. But then even so, wh what is going to be enough to get them to to act on it? Germany, Germany is 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 so has tons and tons of problems, but it's clean compared to some of the other countries, right? And that's mm. because their laws are the harshest when it comes to the uh, tech companies, but still it's not enough. Mm. And so I wish I, I wish I knew the answer. I, you know, there are people who know way more about European regulation and I would say are probably smarter than I am that maybe have some kind of uh, solution, but I still think it's going to come down to the companies and what they are willing to do for their users. What are mm. they willing to do to protect their users without having to tell a government, without having to have a government tell them to protect their users? Mm. But okay, so so up until now, we've been discussing this problem or solutions to this problem from, from the citizens standpoint, right? But what about the, the consumer? So you have some, uh, let's say, initiatives like the Sleeping Giants. Uh, you have similar similar entities in in the EU as well, which are trying to focus on the, let's say, on the monetary issue of of the deal, right? On on the advertisers, on big companies that are that are basically financing Facebook through ad buys, through uh, different um, different business deals they have with with Facebook. Do you see that? pressure or do you see the companies that are that are using facebook uh, as as its advertising platform do you see them doing enough 
in terms of curbing hate speech or or uh, you know pushing facebook to to react on it yeah i mean i think that there are some companies who um you know do quite a lot and then there are others who will maybe make a statement and do something temporarily i think it's well what i'm really saying is that there's a spectrum of how the Mm. companies react for example starbucks is considering removing all of its advertising and its its um uh its facebook pages from facebook mm-hmm. um because it because it's going to take that kind of commitment from another corporation a money maker right to 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 move these companies so last year you had the uh that campaign where mm-hmm. civil society asked a, a lot of uh, major corporations to pause their advertising for a month in the summer, mm-hmm. and they did, and it and it did have some kind of impact, economic impact on Facebook, but then the month was over and companies gradually went back to them. The real problem is not big giant corporations advertising it's all the thousands and thousands of small businesses that advertise Mm. they that is the most cost effective way to advertise their business and they it's the biggest reach so the advertising models are different now because you can't buy uh, you know like you used to watch commercials on television and shows well you don't want you don't consume uh television that way anymore you you have it on streaming services and or people don't receive newspapers in their homes anymore they read them online Mm. and and so you so the advertising models are somewhat different than they were 20 years ago but you have like your neighborhood florist what's the best way for them to tell everybody in like a three mile radius that they have a sale on roses this week for for Valentine's Day or something. It's going to mm. be on Facebook. It mm. you know it, it's how can you get to people? Well, people are on Facebook, and it is it is a huge conundrum. So it's not that the big corporations. I mean, of course, we want them as big corporations that employ tens and thousands of people and who have billions of uh, consumers across the world. We want them to share that message. We want them to say, we do not believe in this. And so we hope you won't believe in it too. Mm. But it's not them. It's the it's the the smaller outfits who don't have a choice. Mm. Uh, in our let's say final round of, of questions, let's let's look to the future, right? The the new uh, the new government in the US is let's say leaning towards um, some sort of attempts of, of regulating uh, intermediaries, right? You have uh, uh, the President Joe Biden uh, composing different task forces or different supporting different initiatives that in in part hint at, at some sort of, let's say, social media regulation models. You have the new assembled FTC and stuff. Do you see those um, those attempts panning out or, or making a dent in, in the current um, let's say the the business model of of hate uh do you see them as something that will um 
that will change the the flow or that will change the the empowerment that the hate gets from filter bubbles from social media from let's say the digital economy in any way well i can say this i think that this administration is truly committed to addressing um violent white supremacy far-right extremism domestic terrorism and i think that they are also understanding of the transnational nature of this so that is all positive like because we haven't had that ever really mm. we um not at this level of commitment and they are willing to put resources behind it and they are willing to create these task forces you say and talk to civil society about how do we what it, first of all bring us up to speed tell us all that you know and then also tell us how we can address it without infringing upon the civil liberties of our citizens right mm. so i think that that is all good from the perspective of we, we've been kind of talking about hate speech but what the other thing that happens is the organization of terrorist events online mm. and that is um uh, from racially motivated uh, extremists it is uh you know i mean you have the spectrum again for who is willing to um who who can who will organize with each other or with other groups in order to commit violence mm. and i believe that there is a commitment to eradicating that which is different than hate speech right mm. now mm. they often go hand in hand but you can approach them differently we can't interfere with somebody saying something terrible about a, a group of people but mm. we can interfere if they are organizing the insurrection on the capitol mm. <laughs> right <laughs> or if they're organizing if you remember what happened in charlottesville the yeah. united right uh rally where people died there as well yeah and even, but see here's the thing even that wasn't enough to get mm. folks to move it took the insurrection on the capitol which is you know we could talk all day about how sad that is but now mm. it's done and there is a commitment so i think the question will be is what will the us do when it comes to um like looking at these transnational groups like uh, generation identity what mm. are their connections to the us the, like canada has already outlawed the proud boys which is a us based or a uh, uh, extremist organization so mm. that's so that's a little bit different the only concern I have is that there isn't a currently enough expertise in the government to address this because they've been focusing on Islamist extremism ever since 9-11 mm -hmm. um, oddly enough prior to 9-11 there was a push within the government to address domestic extremism mm. because it wasn't so long since uh, Oklahoma City bombing but then when the 9-11 happened, not just the U.S., but the governments across the world put all their resources behind Islamist extremism, rightly so, except that we we can't, we don't want to have this, this imbalance. We have multiple threats, multiple mm -hmm. violent threats, and we need to be paying attention to them with the appropriate resources, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I think that that is going to be the difference. How do we address the, the organization and planning of violent events versus hate speech? That's where the, I think that's where the governments can um, have a larger impact. And, and one more question in, in that regard. So uh, you've mentioned the the changing, let's say, landscape of, of the alt-right since, let's say, 9-11. And we can see now that, that these are not just, let's say, street thugs or, or random people with, with an agenda and access to the internet, but you have a whole structures of, let's say, academic thinkers, media personality, you have... Uh, democratically elected representatives that are you know uh, um, that are that are um, standing behind these these alt-right um, ideals to say the least do you see that as as an issue i mean do you see that as a as a problem that will uh, that will hamper the efforts to to tackle it or do you see them as as maybe part of the solution in terms of that people will now see, as you've mentioned, the, the storming of the capital, that things are really serious, that these are not just random individuals, that there's that these are, you know, organizations with, let's say, money, with an agenda, with tools, weapons, and that this, this issue needs to be addressed more seriously or more um, all-encompassing. Well, I think... So I will say that since January 6th, there has been a recognition and of, of the, the true threat of um, racialized movements to the safety and security of our democracy. I think that there has been a recognition of that. And I think that it has been, I mean, we're talking about the U.S. here. But that, that has also occurred in um, many conservative voices, not extreme voices, conservative voices. I mm. also think that there is a faction that has politicized that who, for whatever reason, mostly because they're able to rile up their base, bring on more supporters by playing on the fears, they have, they have equated what happened on January 6th with a, an attack on Republicans, on conservatives. Mm. Mm. And so you have that faction, it's that same faction that tr supports Trump. Um, so no, I don't think this problem is going to be solved soon. I think that this is, once you have this kind of, oh, this kind of division within a society, and once it is exploited so thoroughly it takes time to bring things back to a to a a more accepted sense of normalcy mm. um and so then you but the idea that the same that the guy who has a swastika on his t-shirt at the insurrection is somehow connected to an elected official Again, I think that there is, um, there are some folks that have recognized that the problem is very much street violence with with uh, neo-Nazi thugs, but it but it is the ideals that they push that are making their way into mainstream politics. Mm. 
that is what that is that was really also the purpose of our report it's you don't have a long way to go between uh a you know a neo-nazi in a clubhouse somewhere and a politician who is uh pushing an anti-semitic policy it, mm. it happens way more often than anybody would want to uh acknowledge but the idea that you have some folks that are wearing suits and ties and who have impressive academic backgrounds and or who are successful business people and they're work they're doing all this stuff behind the scenes um that's always been a problem i think that it has not changed that it's going to continue to be a problem and the only thing that we can do is to make it we have to create a situation where it is not good for them. It's not, it, it, it's not productive for them to take these positions. Mm. Even if they believe it, they can't act on it. <laughs> <laughs> and do you see that, that as a, as a, not as a viable solution, but as something that, that is happening, like maybe we can, we can connect this issue with, uh, the upcoming, uh, presidency of, of Slovenia to, to the, uh, European Union Council, you know, we 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 currently have a prime minister who's very, let's say, interested in those topics. Not yeah. only as as a politician, but also as as uh, through through his party, through his party members. And do you see that as, let's say, uh, enough of a problem that other countries or other um, let's say country leaders will? you know, notice and they'll adapt their own behavior to that fact. To the fact that to they the see... fact that you have a you have a prime minister who's, you know, uh, very much um, showing its support uh, for for the alt-right movement, who's retweeting all sorts of crazy people, starting from, you know, uh, Trump uh, news network to other alt-right uh, alt-right personalities from all over the globe um do you see that as something that will or that should affect um let's say political talks or or political standings between different countries in regards to to our own country well do i think it <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a diplomat, but I, I think that when it comes to the countries like in Slovenia and your, you know, in your own country and other countries like Hungary and Poland, the only way you're going to be able to impact that is, uh, is through political pressure from the other countries and mm. possibly economic pressure. It has to, it, it, they have to see that it's not good for them to mm. do this. Um, of course, I would add that we should, that when um, you don't have to take their platform away entirely, but if they're going to be pushing uh, radical bigoted uh, statements or saying that COVID is, is not really a problem or that if it wasn't for the Roma, then we wouldn't have, co you know, all the various mm -hmm. things that get said, um, you take that platform away from them and that will have an impact. Um, that will have an impact on the citizenry 
um, because then you, where you do have free elections, and I mean that's our biggest weapon, isn't it, to vote somebody out? But if the but if the election playing field is uneven, which it so often is because of you know the dollars that are required to get somebody elected, you know all of that. But mm. there are different ways that you can level that playing field and not allow them to use just the worst tactics to bring voters. So, so yeah, so I know that was kind of a rambling answer, but I do think that um, the other governments have to say, we're not dealing with you. You're not, we're not, you're, you know, we, you cannot expect to, uh, to be a person who represents everything that is antithetical to our democratic notions and then mm. and then interact with us in a way that is uh, the same as some as an as a company as a country that is doing all it can to promote democratic ideals. Obviously, everybody gets it wrong sometimes, but in general, yeah, I think there has to be pressure. Mm. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna stop here. Uh, I'm always having troubles with ending this serious conversation on a positive <laughs> note, and I think oh, that was. Yeah. <laughs> that was positive enough to to call it a wrap. Uh, thank you, Wendy, for for being with, with us. Uh, good luck with your uh, global project against uh, hate and extremism. And uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. It was good to be here. Thanks. <laughs>